I am closing my 52 years of military service. I now close my military career and just fade away. An old soldier who tried to do his duty as God gave him the light to see that duty. Goodbye. General Douglas MacArthur's 1951 farewell speech to Congress is legendary in military circles. The larger-than-life general who accepted Japan's surrender in 1945 and oversaw the country's democratic transition. The Medal of Honor recipient who led the U.S. and Allied Command during the early parts of the Korean War was now done, retired, in his own words, fading away. But General MacArthur didn't end his career willingly. He was fired, relieved of his command by President Truman. The steps leading up to the general's removal are extensive and convoluted. They included public statements by MacArthur that undermined the president, and intercepts of MacArthur's diplomatic communications that showed him openly subverting stated U.S. government positions. Insubordination from a top military leader was alarming enough, but the situation was compounded by a reckless, almost certainly catastrophic plan conceived by General MacArthur himself. In December of 1950, General MacArthur requested 34 nuclear bombs for use against North Korea and potentially even China. Here's the very brief background. In June of 1950, North Korea, backed by China and the Soviet Union, invaded South Korea, hoping to unite the Korean Peninsula under communist rule. The United States and other allied countries quickly deployed troops to push back the North Koreans, but the effort wasn't going too well. Within only a couple of months, North Korea had pushed allied troops back near Pusan, at the southern end of South Korea. But the allies struck back, executing a long-shot assault far to the north at Incheon, close to the North Korean border. The operation placed allied troops behind enemy lines and able to disrupt North Korean access to the far south. The North Koreans were caught off guard, and eventually North Korean troops were forced to retreat back across the South Korean border. After all this transpired, morale was pretty high among the Allied forces. In fact, so high that General MacArthur convinced President Truman that he could take North Korea and unite the Korean Peninsula under strategically friendly circumstances. President Truman okayed the idea, but only under limited conditions. MacArthur assured Truman that China wouldn't step in to protect North Korea, a major concern in Washington. In the end, China did intervene. MacArthur's forces were actually pushed back across the South Korean border. His initial plans thwarted. MacArthur then asked for 34 nuclear bombs. During an interview in 1954, General MacArthur elaborated on his nuclear plans. Quote, I could have won the war in Korea in a maximum of 10 days. Between 30 and 50 atomic bombs would have more than done the job. End quote. He also had another idea involving the use of highly dangerous radioactive cobalt to prevent China from again crossing the border into North Korea. The idea was to create a five-mile-wide belt of radioactivity along the Yalu River, which divides North Korea and China, that would have made it impossible to cross. 
This cobalt belt, he said, would have prevented a land invasion for 60 years. The request for nuclear weapons, thankfully, was denied. His plan to irradiate large portions of the earth, literally poisoning the air and water on the Korean peninsula for decades, never came to fruition either. And just a few months after all of this transpired, President Truman relieved General MacArthur from duty. For good. This is Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation in Washington, D.C. I'm James McKeon, a policy analyst here at the Center. For this episode, we thought it might be a good idea to do a deep dive into the North Korean situation with a leading North Korean nuclear expert, Dr. Jim Walsh. Jim is a senior research associate at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, and he's also a center board member. He's also one of the few Americans who has actually been to both Iran and North Korea for unofficial talks with government officials. At the center, we make it a point to brief quite a few members of Congress on our issues, and Jim is often our expert briefer on North Korea. Hazel Correa, our communications director, talked to Jim about his experiences in North Korea, why sanctions against North Korea aren't working as intended, and how the current situation might be resolved. Hi, Jim. Thanks for joining us. Let's start with, what was it like being in North Korea? What's life like there for ordinary citizens? Well, I would say hands down of all the countries I've visited, uh, uh, including Iran and North Korea, that uh, North Korea is the most unusual country I've ever been in. But my visit was back in 2005. I've met fairly regularly with Korean officials, North Korean officials since then, but we've met uh, sort of halfway in between in Geneva or uh, uh, in other European capitals. But certainly for people in Pyongyang, you're not not there by accident. North Korea is not a place where you get to just pack your bags and live in any city you want. The government assigns where you live. And only the elite uh, get to live in the capital city. And so when I was there in 2005, uh, the elite weren't doing very well. <laughs> I uh, remember riding around, and rather than traffic lights, they would have uh, women in traditional garb uh, standing on a box in the middle of a intersection with batons there to act as um, traffic lights, but there was no traffic. There were no cars on the street, and many of the buildings were half finished. Uh, I remember coming out of my hotel one night. Uh, there had been a, a pretty bad storm uh, the evening before. Had knocked down tree branches all over the capital, and what I saw was an, a variety of people coming out. Uh, the elderly. Uh, people in uniform and others who were gathering sticks as fast as their fingers uh, could take them, uh, presumably for firewood. So things weren't particularly good there. Uh, Reports from the capital city suggest a very different situation now. There are cars on the street, even the occasional traffic jam. Uh, Buildings have been finished. There are markets. Uh, official markets, there are informal markets that are legal, and then informal markets that are illegal, uh, but uh, that in the main, uh, life for the elites has gotten better over these last 15-plus years. It's, that's le- it's less clear for those who are not elites, uh, for the people who live in the countryside 
or in the old industrial cities to the north of North Korea. Let me say something about Koreans as people. You know, for the uh, people I've had meetings with and I've engaged with in uh, North Korea and outside of North Korea, I very much like North Koreans. I, I find them a very engaging uh, people and, and who have a lot of skills, have a lot of smarts, but they live in a system uh, that has put them at great disadvantage. So one of your um, recent interviews on, I think, MSNBC, you mentioned that sanctions are not working. Can you explain why that is? Sure. The, that conclusion, we arrived at that conclusion, and I say we because there was research that my colleague John Park at Harvard and I conducted on what we called North Korea Inc., the system of state-owned trading companies whose very job is to procure uh, goods abroad, both licit goods like you know washing machines and foodstuffs and illicit goods, things that might go to their missile or nuclear program. So uh, that project interviewed North Korean defectors who had moved to South Korea, uh, North Korean defectors who had worked for these state trading companies. And the story they told was one in which we would impose sanctions and then they would adjust, they would innovate, they would take countermeasures, uh, but we would not respond to their countermeasures. We just kept doing the same thing over and over again. Part of it is that they've innovated while we have uh, continued to do the same old, same old, old. Part of it is, you know, it's one thing to pass a sanctions law, it's another thing to have it enforced, and this is not everyone's biggest priority. And so the UN panel of experts reports consistently uh, describe how we've had some pretty poor performance on the part of some countries as far as their sanctions obligations go. Okay, in that case, what do you propose is the way to address the North Korean threat, if not just sanctions? Well, sanctions uh, were never designed, uh, people have sort of thought about it this way, but they were never designed to simply uh, result in your policy goal. There, uh, sanctions are one small rather modest uh, part of what should be an overall political strategy. My policy uh, suggestion would be that we need to uh, open diplomatic relations with the North Koreans so that at least they, can, they don't make any mistakes because they misread what we're saying or doing. And secondly, in order to pursue negotiations that might lead to a freeze of their activities, a freeze in the production of nuclear material that could be used for bombs, and a freeze in their long-range missile tests. I mean, uh, they've been advancing, you know, two steps forward, one step back, but they've been advancing particularly under young, the young Kim, and I'd like to see those advances and capabilities frozen in place with no more uh, growth and capability. So I think we can get a freeze, Then North Koreans have made noises about it, and the Trump administration, among its many contradictory signals, has also raised the possibility of talking. And I can tell you, in the absence of talking, nothing's going to change, and the danger of war will persist. The Trump administration has said all options are on the table, including military intervention. What are the possible consequences of military action in North Korea? Well, we've had Republican and Democratic presidents, presidents from the mid-90s on, who have, with each one coming uh, to office, have considered whether they had a military option. And in almost every case, they concluded they didn't have a military option. And that's actually true of the Trump administration. They have had a policy review. People don't realize that they c concluded their 
uh, North Korea policy review. And the policy they came up with is, quote, enhanced pressure uh, and engagement, close quote. And, in fact, that policy review rejected military options. And it's easy to see why. You know, let's say we attack them. Well, we better get all those nuclear weapons because the last thing you want to do is attack a country that owns nuclear weapons and uh, then still has them after the attack because they're going to be pretty angry. Uh, and, and so do we have high confidence that we can get every one of those nuclear weapons? We know exactly where they are and we would be able to eliminate them. Eliminate them? I don't think so. And even if you could get the nuclear weapons, uh, by the time you launched your first attack, uh, thousands and thousands of artillery shells would rain down from north of the demilitarized zone onto Seoul, Seoul being South Korea's capital and economic center and uh, home to millions of people. Uh, so you're not going to be able to stop that, uh, and not to mention the fact that North Korea has, uh, presumably has chemical and biological weapons, at least chemical bio, uh, weapons that they might use in retaliation. And so there is no military option here. You can't, there's no such thing as a neat and clean strike uh, where everything goes our way. If you could just, you know, send a message to President Trump, if, if he was listening to you, what would you say? I would say talk less rather than more. Stick to your policy. You have a policy, stick to it, and get everyone on the same page. Uh, don't have... The vice president say one thing, your ambassador to the U.N. say something else, the secretary of state uh, something else, and you tweeting uh, threats at night. So you have a policy, stick to it, talk less about it, get on the same page, and work with our South Korean ally. We've made this sound like it's a U.S. versus North Korea. And if there's a war going to be fought, it's going to be fought on South Korean soil. It's not in California, on South Korean soil. And we've sort of gone half-cocked into this uh, situation with North Korea when our good ally, South Korea, doesn't even have an elected president yet. And I, so let's not replace strategic patience with strategic haste. Let's let the, our ally have their presidential election. Let's all get on the same page. Let's create fewer headlines and more opportunities for a, a, a change in policy and, and, and a negotiation that could put us on a different track. The quest for nuclear weapons on the Korean peninsula clearly didn't end with General MacArthur. During the early 1970s, South Korea began its own nuclear weapons program, but ultimately dropped the plan under pressure from its strongest ally, the United States. There's more to the story, though. The United States deployed nuclear weapons in South Korea from 1958 to 1991. At one point, it's believed there were nearly a thousand nukes there. And now, with North Korea's advancing nuclear and missile programs, some are calling for U.S. nuclear weapons to come back, or for South Korea to restart its own nuclear program. Who has called for such a plan? Well... Maybe they would, in fact, be better off if they defend themselves from North Korea. Maybe we nukes. would be better off, including with nukes, yes. Just in case the voice wasn't distinct enough, that was President Trump. Prominent South Korean politicians have endorsed the idea as well, and polls have shown that some South Koreans support it too. So you might be asking, why shouldn't South Korea get nuclear weapons? Wouldn't it make them safer? The answer is simple. No. 
The more nuclear-armed countries there are, especially ones who have erratic, sworn enemies, the higher the chances of escalation leading to nuclear war. That's why for decades, under both Democratic and Republican presidents and Congresses, U.S. nuclear non-proliferation policy has been twofold. One, reduce the number of nuclear weapons around the world. And two, prevent countries that don't have nuclear weapons from having them in the future. Addressing the North Korean nuclear situation with a military-first strategy is not a viable solution, and neither is allowing South Korea or Japan to develop their own nuclear arsenals. These options put everyone, and I mean everyone, in more danger. As we talked about with Jim Walsh, the only viable solution has to involve one critical element, diplomacy. Before we go, just one quick note for all you wonks out there. Last week, in telling the story about how a nuke almost went off in North Carolina, I cited two similar crashes involving nukes, one in Spain and the other in Greenland. And I said that nuclear bombs were lost and then never seen again. For brevity's sake, we didn't mention that the Greenland bombs detonated, but only with conventional explosives, meaning it never went nuclear. What was lost wasn't the entire weapon, but some weapons components. As for Spain, that whole nuclear bomb that fell into the sea was eventually found. It just took nearly three months to recover the thing. But regardless, all three of those stories highlight the fact that flying around with nuclear weapons aboard or keeping nuclear weapons on high alert can be dangerous. Really dangerous. According to years of research by nuclear expert Stephen Schwartz, the U.S. has lost a total of seven complete nuclear weapons. The former Soviet Union lost 27. I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for sharing the additional information. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, shoot us an email at podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at at nukes underscore of underscore hazard. You can also like our Facebook page, www.facebook.com slash armscontrolcenter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon.